I'm driving around and thinking about things and have some time to step away from the church, uh, just gives me an opportunity to reflect on you and reflect on uh, the blessings that God has brought to bear here uh, at Hebron. And I just want to say thank you to all of you. Um, I was just going through the aisles and seeing your faces and thinking about what uh, potential God has in each of you and uh, how he has used your life for his glory. And um, it's just a real honor for me, week in and week out, to be able to stand and speak God's truth into your life. So thank you so much for that opportunity. Uh, we are, we've been in Romans uh, the first part of the year. Uh, we took a little pause, a little time out from that for the summer months, and now we're going to get ready to jump back into Romans. Uh, we covered the first eight chapters up until about uh, the start of the summer. And so I thought it would be of some help to us to do a little bit of review. So today's a week of review, just to get our minds wrapped back around all that we had discussed. And so I'm just going to go, I'm going to do a summary, chapter by chapter, of Romans chapters 1 through 8. And then we'll talk about what difference all this makes to your life and mine. And we'll see how all this leads into Romans chapter 9, which is where we're going next week. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open to Romans chapter 8. We're going to stand and read together from Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. Let's stand and read together. Um, and so uh, let's, let's go ahead and read these verses together. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. Here we go. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Actually, I think I only read through verse 3, but that's okay. Um, go ahead. Y'all sit down. That's fine. Um, and so uh, let's just kind of walk into this chapter-by-chapter chapter summary, and uh, we'll start with chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I have a little slide for you here, and it'll kind of read out some notes so you can follow along with me. Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing here um, how mankind is without excuse. That is that we know better than to live the way that we live. So we know what wrongdoing is. God has written his laws on our heart. We have this thing called a conscience, and that's why a lie detector works, because when we violate God's law, it triggers a, literally triggers a natural response within us of stress, tells us that what you're doing is wrong. We can look at God's creation. We can look at all that he's created. We can identify God's attributes. We know better than to live the way that we're living. And so Paul says we live, we're without excuse. And so humanity, in order to suppress God's truth, we go deeper into sin, and Paul describes this downward spiral into sin until eventual destruction of societies. And again, that's all Romans chapter 1. When we get to Romans chapter 2, Paul presents two observations. Uh, the first of those is that with God there is no um, impunity. And the second observation is that with God there is no partiality. Let's start with no impunity. The Jewish people had become kind of lackadaisical in their approach to God and their pursuit of personal holiness. They would go to the temple, they would make their sacrifices for sin, and then the rest of the days of the week they would go out and live in many cases, worse than their neighbors were living who didn't attend church or who weren't participating in worship. And so uh, Paul says, look, you know, they kind of felt like, well, if God's going to forgive me of my sin uh, when I go to the temple and I make my sacrifices, then what's my, uh, what's my desire to want to live for him? Why should I be obedient to him? Why can't I have the best of both worlds? Why can't I get forgiveness of my sin? And on the other hand, why can't I just live however I want to live? And so Paul says, hold on just a minute. He said, you are presuming on the kindness of God. He says, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, he said, you presume on the riches of God's kindness when you live that way. Paul says that the purpose of God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. The purpose of his forbearance, the purpose of his patience with us is to 
to lead us to repentance. Repentance is a turning away from sin. It's a recognizing that I did wrong, feeling sorry about that, asking for God's forgiveness, but then trying to live differently moving forward. That's what repentance is. And so Paul says, look, God has given you this time out. He's given you this period of reprieve uh, between now and eternity for you to, to begin living for him, for you to start getting your life squared away. And he says, uh, basically, you, you have been doing that. And so by God not zapping us into oblivion when we sin, which God, who is a holy and righteous God, has the right to do, by not doing that, by showing us his mercy, he's giving us the chance, he's giving us the opportunity to get things turned around and live for him. Um, and so with God, there is no impunity. Uh, that is, there will come a day when we have to uh, give account. That's the first observation. The second observation, again, he's talking to the Jewish people amongst the Christians, or the Jewish Christians amongst this church in Rome. And the second observation is that with God, there is no partiality. Paul writes, Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, that God will render to each one according to his works. In these verses, Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians, and the Jews had a longstanding belief that all Jewish people go to heaven. That was what they believed. They kind of believed in this idea of group salvation, that if you're born into the Jewish faith, that if you're a part of the nation of Israel, then of course God's going to you know, lead you on up to heaven. And so Paul says, and so Paul responds, he says in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. In other words, you cannot ride the coattails, he's speaking to the Jewish Christians here, you cannot ride the coattails of Moses into heaven. Just because Moses was this great man of God and he was the, and Abraham was the progenitor of our faith and all this stuff, just because we're part of their seed, just because we're part of the nation of Israel, doesn't mean that we get an automatic uh, get-out-of-jail-free card uh, when it comes to salvation. Um, just the same in your life and mine today, just because my great-grandfather was a pastor or my great-grandmother was a missionary or my mom prayed an awful lot for me for my salvation when I was a kid, that doesn't mean that I get to ride their coattails into heaven just the same. Rather, each person must make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. You can be a king, you can be a queen, you can be a millionaire or a billionaire, and heaven is full of, or I'm sorry, hell is full of those kinds of people and because... It, what is it dependent on is that God shows no partiality. A relationship with Jesus has to be struck, and it is struck by you and I making a personal decision for Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what your title is, doesn't matter how much money you got in your account. Again, God shows no partiality. That's Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 3. Paul introduces us to some key words. The first is the word redemption. It's the Greek term apolutrosis. And this is a word when people in Greek times or, or first century times would have heard the word apolutrosis, many of them would have been familiar with where that term belongs. It was a slave market word. And it was, uh, if you had debt that you owed and you couldn't pay that debt off, then one of the ways that the person who you owed money to could redeem uh, the money that you owed them is they could put you up on the slave market for sale. And they could sell you in a way to recoup as a means of recouping some of their losses. Well, if you had a family member or a sympathetic benefactor who arrived at the sale, and they could holler out, apolutrosis, apolutrosis, and that would stop the sale. Uh, and, you would, and that person would be able to buy you back. They would be able to pay your debt off. So they're yelling out, redemption, redemption. That's the word in English. 
uh, and they could settle your debt for you. Paul states, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's just a restatement of what he's already said back in Romans chapter 1, this idea that we are with all without any excuse, that we all have sin in our life, that no one is, uh, is without sin. But Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, here comes the good news. Look at what God did for us through Jesus, he, he writes. We are justified, justified meaning that we are made right in the sight of God, that we can stand in his presence secure and safe not fearful of his holiness, that we can be made right in his sight. And he says this is a gift. And how is this gift of God made available to us? Through apolutrosis, through redemption in Christ Jesus. That is that Jesus bought us back. Paul is using this imagery of the slave market to say, hey, look, Jesus, we were standing on the block about to be sold off to go toward a place apart from God for all of eternity. And Jesus said, apolutrosis, apolutrosis redemption redemption i've paid her price i've paid his price i will buy them back the second word that we discover in romans chapter 3 is the word propitiation you say propitiation what is that word i've never heard that one before well propitiation uh, occurs only one other time in the greek language it's the word hilasterion in the new testament and so let's flip over there really quickly to see the other occasion of hilasterion i've got a i think i've got a we have a slide for that? Anyhow, you can see propitiation and the word hilasterion. And it occurs over in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. It's the only other occasion in the New Testament. And uh, the author's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the furnishings specifically in the tabernacle where Moses and later the priest would go and make sacrifices for sin. And it reads this, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 9. Above the Ark of the Covenant were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, I think we have a picture of this for you. It shows the Ark of the Covenant, which is that box. And then the mercy seat itself is that golden lid that rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was these two golden statues of cherubim that we learn elsewhere in Scripture that those cherubim in heaven, the real thing in heaven, that they're live cherubim, but on earth, the ones that were fashioned by the hands of men, were statues. And so God's presence would come during the Old Testament times, and he would rest or reside there on top of this mercy seat or on top of uh, those two cherubim. And that is where God would meet. That was the most holy and sacred spot in all of Israel. It was the place where God would meet with his people. He would meet with them through a representative. At first it was Moses. Later it would be the high priest that would come into that holy of holies, the back of the temple, the back of the tabernacle. And he would meet with God, and they would make sacrifices for sins there. Um, and so the idea there is that you can, if you come to this place and you come to this place in the right way, doing the right steps, that you could experience the mercy of God. And that's why this was called the mercy seat. Now, again, what's translated in our Bible as mercy seat is in the Greek, the word hilasterion. Go back to Romans chapter three for a moment. I know this is a lot to take in, right? It's like multiple weeks worth of study. Uh, the Greek word that's translated there, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, mercy seat, hilasterion, occurs over in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Paul writes, Jesus, whom God put forward as a hilasterion, as a propitiation, it's translated in that occasion, or as a mercy seat of, by his blood. You see, friends, what the Bible is communicating here is that Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the means by which we can enter into the presence of Almighty God and he can uh, be our representative. He can speak on our behalf and we can find and experience the mercy of God. Jesus is the place where the righteous anger of God toward us is removed. Jesus is the place where we as sinners can meet with a holy God and there can be peace 
between us and him. Jesus is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. Again, that's one of the key concepts in Romans chapter 3. And when we get to Romans chapter 4, Paul begins to develop his teaching on justification by faith alone. To be justified means to be made right in God's sight, to be declared not guilty. You can enter into his sight without fear. And the way that we become not guilty is by faith. And to develop this teaching, Paul goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. He goes back to the father of the nation of Israel, to a guy by the name of Abraham. He's quoting here in verse uh, 3 from Genesis chapter 15, uh, which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Um, How did Abraham get right with God? How does the verse say that, going back to Genesis chapter 15, how did he get right with God? Was it by giving to the poor? No. How did Abraham get right with God? Was it by making sacrifices for his sin? No. How did Abraham get right with God? Was it by uh, uh, thinking the right things? Uh, Was it by joining a church? Not even close. Abraham was given right standing before God through his belief, the verse says, in the promises that God had made him. God had made Abraham a promise that a deliverer would come or a messiah would come and he would deliver the people of God from their sins. He would forgive them of their sins. Abraham was looking forward in time to when that promise would be fulfilled. We are looking backward in time to when that promise was fulfilled. Both of us are looking to the promise. You follow me? Abraham was saved by the blood of Jesus just the same as you and I are, and that's the point that Paul is making here. He says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, the coming of the Messiah, the forgiveness of his sins. Verse 22, that is why his faith, not his work, good works, but his faith was counted to him as righteous. Abraham was putting his faith and trust in the anticipated promise that a deliverer would come who would one day take away the sins of God's people. But again, both Abraham and us are looking to the promise of the deliverer who would deliver us from our sins. And it's for this reason that Paul opens up Romans chapter 5, verse 1, with these words. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, there are some really wonderful nuggets of theological truth in Romans chapter 5. We don't have time to cover all of them. I'll give you just a couple. Verse 1 is one of those. We just talked about it. And also Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 demonstrates to us the great magnitude of God's love for us. It says this. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, while Gordon was misbehaving, Jesus went to the cross anyway. Before I had gotten my life and my act together, Jesus died for me anyway. Friends, that's an amazing kind of love. It's the kind of love that we don't see that often in this world. And it's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. While we were sinners, while we were unworthy and rebellious toward him even, Christ went ahead and died for us anyway. Paul then talks about how Adam set in motion original sin. That is that all of humanity would be born with a bent toward sinning. This is the second half of Romans chapter 5. Uh, Now, this is not to be confused with inherited sin. Some theologians, and we talked about this the week that we covered this, some theologians would say that Adam uh, 
the sin that we received from Adam uh, cursed the entire human race such that we are born into the world condemned already in our sin. And that's not what I see here in this verse. And I'll tell you the reason why I see that. It's because this verse also assert, or these verses also assert that Jesus died for our sins and that through him we can have our sins forgiven. So on the one hand, we can't say, hey, look, you have to make a personal decision to accept Jesus into your life to have your sins forgiven. But then on the other hand, oh, you don't have to make a personal decision. You don't have to sin. You're just considered a sinner already. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. Go back and listen to the sermon from several weeks back ago. It doesn't make more sense to you. Uh, but the point is here that what we inherited from Adam was original sin. We inherited this bent, this nature within, inside of us that we war against to try and eradicate sin out of our life. But we just can't do it. We can't overcome it because we have this sinful nature that we're born into the world with. And that's what Romans chapter 5 communicates. Paul says, Romans 5 verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, middle of verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Chapter 6. With chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul does something a little bit unique here. In chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul begins to talk about the living out of our Christian faith. So now he's established that it begins by faith, that is established by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. That's how we get salvation. That's how we get justified, made right in God's sight. But then what about the days after that? What about the years after that? What does the Christian life look like after that? And so he addresses the, that subject in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6, um, he, he reminds us of why we should live a life free of sin. Chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, now that you've acknowledged before God that the things that you were doing needed forgiving, why would you want to go back and live that way? He's just asking the question. Sin represents slavery, he goes on to say. It represents bondage. Paul writes, verse 6, Our old self, our old life was crucified with Jesus in order that, or so that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is, that the power of this sin that's operating in our life might be worked down. That the power of this sin in our life might be, even in some cases, we might say, dealt with, finally, ultimately eradicated, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sins. We would be walking around getting kicked around by this sinful nature. And then Paul does something very unique, perhaps a little bit strange. He begins to talk about all of this from his own life's, life's, life's ugh, I'm not sure the word there, his own perspective. Um, and I find it very liberating. I find it very encouraging that Paul gives us a glimpse inside of his own struggle with sin. He says, uh, chapter 7 and verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In other words, even the great apostle Paul, even this great man of God, this great missionary who wrote much of the New Testament, even this guy had an ongoing struggle with sin in his life. And we, many Christians throughout the centuries have found that to be very encouraging to think that, you know what, even a guy like Paul wasn't 100% right all the time. Um, and then he goes on to say, concludes the matter, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, from this powerful, rebellious, sinful nature that dwells on the inside of me? And then he says, verse 25, Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, thanks be to God that I have forgiveness for all of my inequity. Or all of my iniquity. But I'm still left with this issue, he says, verse 25, of serving the law of God with my mind, of wanting to do the right thing in my head, 
But in reality, he says, the powerful flesh, it is so strong within me, uh, drawing me to serve the law of sin. That is the law of the sinful nature inside of me. Chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says, hey, look, even though in the face of my ongoing struggle with sin, he says, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation or no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, I cannot sin my way out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And thank God for that. That we don't come to a certain point in our life where God says, okay, you've met your quota. That's it. She's out. He's out. They're done. And so Paul says, hey, look, despite the ongoing struggle of sin in my life, he's look, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul had said back in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, but where sin increased, even in his own life, grace abounded all the more. And we thank God for that. Paul closes out this section of Romans chapter 8 by reminding us of the abounding security that we have in the blood of Jesus. He says, Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful crescendo to this tremendous body of theological material that the Apostle Paul has just shared. Now, all of that brings us to our most important question, Uh, The question that we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, you know what? After hearing you talk, I feel like I know less about the book of Romans than I did when I came in here this morning. Uh, So, I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, the first difference that it makes is that it raises, all of this raises a very interesting question. And it's the question that Paul's going to address in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And that question is, if God is so able to let nothing separate us from his love, then where is Israel today? How come God has these people that he called the people of God and they rebelled and rejected their Messiah? What are we to do with that? Because if God wasn't faithful to them, then how can I know that God's going to be faithful to me? And so as Paul spends the next three chapters, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, dealing with that issue, and we'll get to all that next week. Um, now, so let me, uh, let me address how, what difference this made. My, to answer that question, what difference this made to our, our life, let me uh, first talk about what difference it made to the lives of a couple of people through history. First of all, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Germany. Um, he was studying to be a lawyer for the law. I'm not sure what they would have called that back then, but anyhow, he was studying to uh, work in the law. And um, one day he was traveling down the road and he was struck by lightning or it struck close by and it affected him somehow. I'm not sure the, all the details of the story. Y'all can Google that later. But um, he cried out, for he cried out, St. Anne, St. Anne, help me and I will become a monk. Uh, so right there on the spot as he's in duress, he makes this deal with, uh, with God, or I guess in that case, St. Anne. I'm not sure how that works. But uh, he makes this deal that he'll become a monk. And so he survived being struck with lightning, and he entered into the monastery. He entered into the uh, monastery of St. Augustine. Um, well, as he began to study for ministry, um, one of the things that he was, he was pressed with was this notion that if he had unconfessed sin in his life, that Martin Luther uh, would end up in hell. 
uh, or at, at the very least, purgatory. And he didn't want that. He didn't want to have to go through that. And so he began this pursuit of trying to identify all the sins that he'd ever committed in his life. And he would write them down, and then he would go to confessional. And he went to confessional daily. In fact, some of his confessional sessions lasted for up to six hours as he tried to remember all of the things that he had ever done over the course of his life. He wanted Because the thing is, if you, didn't, if, you, if you sinned but you didn't confess it, then you're going to have to deal with that on the other side of this. And he was trying to get them all out there. But then the effect of that became even worse because he realized that there's still tomorrow. Um, and, and there's going to be sins that I commit tomorrow, and so I'm going to have to get right back at it again tomorrow, and I'll have to go to confession tomorrow, because if I die with unconfessed sins, then, you know, all these bad things are going to happen to me. I'm going to expose the judgment of God, and um, it was like trying to live in a house with a, with, with, a, with a hose that's just wide open, you know, running out on the floor and trying to clean up the mess every day. Um, and so Martin Luther, um, he was kind of stuck in this neurosis, if you would, uh, well, one of the solutions that came to him through the Catholic Church was the idea of indulgences, that he could pay money to the church and that that money that he paid to the church would, uh, would, would put righteousness into his bank account. Uh, another was that he could touch some of the relics of the Catholic Church. And those relics were connected to saints, and those saints had an abundance of righteousness that they didn't need to get themselves into heaven. And so, therefore, he could touch those indulgences, those, or those relics, and that some of the righteousness, the abundance of righteousness from Mother Mary or whoever it might be, from those saints, that those would become some of his righteousness, and that would be placed in his account. And so, again, it was just a very neurotic attempt to try and be good enough to try and deal with his sin, and to try and get God to accept him. And then Luther began studying Romans. And what he discovered was Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, that we are justified by faith, not by works. And he just realized in Romans chapter 5 that Abraham was justified by faith, by believing in the promise that God had made to him. Not by jumping through some religious hoops. And from that moment on, not only was the yoke of relentless guilt lifted off of Martin Luther, but the Reformation would be born. Another difference that all of this made in the life of uh, a fellow by the name of John Wesley. Wesley was known for being a disciplined man. He was a student at Oxford University. He would rise every morning at 4 a.m., and he would spend time in prayer. When he finished with his time in prayer, he would spend an hour reading through, studying the scriptures, and memorizing the scriptures. All in an attempt to try and eradicate any kind of unholy action, any, to deal with his sinful nature, to, to, to remove that out of him. But, then Wesley, and, but what Wesley concluded at the end of the day was what Paul concluded. Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, O wretched man that I am, despite all of my efforts to try and live a holy life, still find myself falling short of the person that God wants me to be, of the obedience I want to live. But then Wesley discovered Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. We read that at the beginning. Let me read it to us again. It says, the power of the Spirit has set us free from the power, he's talking there, about of the sinful nature. The power of the Spirit has set us free from the power of the sinful nature. Wesley discovered that he did not have to live in bondage to sin, that there was a power available to him outside of himself 
that could enable him to live the kind of life and obedience that he wanted to live. That he could be free of the power of his sinful nature through a moment-by-moment existence where he walked intimately with God through prayer and daily surrender. I had lunch with a dad this past week, nobody that anyone here knows, not somebody connected to our church. And this dad had a question for me, and his question was, you know, I want to be the kind of father that my kids need. I want to be the kind of husband that my wife needs. I want to reflect Christ's love to them. I want to be that kind of a dad. And so he was saying, do you have any advice? Do you have anything from your years of experience as a dad, as a husband, that you could share with me that might help me toward that goal? And I said, well, I got a question for you. And he said, okay. I guess maybe he was expecting some advice. He kind of had a little bit of a puzzled look on his face, like we're going to do a question and answer. Um, And so I said, I got a question for you. I I said, okay, fire away. I said, my question is, how's your prayer life? And his eyes cut down to the table. And he said, it's pretty abysmal. And I said, well, let's talk a little bit about that. And so we talked about his prayer life. We talked about how we can revive that. And what I left him with was, the person you want to be, no advice can get you there. The only way that you can become the father that your kids need, whose response is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, fruits of the Spirit. The only way that can happen is if the Holy Spirit of God so invades your heart and invades your life And you walk moment by moment, surrendered to his leadership. Now, I don't know about you, which one of these maybe speaks more closely to where you're living. Perhaps you've been a prisoner of religion, trying to earn God's favor, trying to be good enough to get him to accept you. Or perhaps like Wesley, you've pursued personal holiness only to declare with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am. You know, my challenge to us today and as we continue in this series is that we would lean into these words that God's truth would meet us at the point of our struggle and our concern and that we would find that same freedom that Wesley and Luther found May we find that same liberty ourselves as we hear God's truth declared into our lives. Friends, may we never be the same. May we never be the same because week in and week out, we sit under the teaching of God's eternal truth. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to gathered together as your body, loving one another, caring for one another, concerned and praying. Lord, we we come around this table now. We're reminded of that unfathomable love that you died for us while we were rebellious and in our sin. In these quiet moments, Holy Spirit, wherever we happen to be walking with you now. May you, through these words of truth, your truth, show us a vision of where you want us to go and of the freedom that can be ours. Lord, we give you this quiet space. 
Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.